lot of what happens in the study of impermanence is just generally in life, we've been taught maybe through our schooling and who knows where else. Look for a chair. There's some chairs over here too, if you prefer. Mm-hmm. We've basically been taught that, you know, when we want to figure something out, we sort of hunker down and concentrate on the problem, and then eventually the mind penetrates, gets the solution, figures it out. And uh, I'm not sure this works so well with spiritual insight. And so you might notice that with impermanence, especially because there's such a big deal made of it, uh, and, and in particular in certain styles of practice, there's a real emphasis on seeing the arising and passing away. I don't know if I mentioned last week, but there's a particular sutta where the Buddha goes through this sequence of things that are really great. It's really great to feed an enlightened being. The karmic benefit from doing that wholesome act of generosity is really tremendous, but more powerful than feeding a really wise you know, a saint, is taking up the precepts of not harming, you know, undertaking the training not to harm living beings. So much more beneficial than even that wonderful act of feeding a saint. And as nice, as powerful, as, you know, wonderful the karmic effect of training and non-harming, he goes on like this about other positive things having really deep concentration, a mind really at peace with loving-kindness. So much more powerful than taking refuge in the Buddha or feeding the Buddha or taking up the training of non-harming. Just having that mind absorbed in loving-kindness is such a powerful thing. I think he uses the length of time that it takes to milk a cow. If you can be concentrated on love universal love for that length of time. So much more valuable than those other things. And then the last is, if you, if one perceives the truth of impermanence in constancy for that snapping, the length of the time it takes to snap your finger, that's so much more beneficial. So there's a lot of this, like, hierarchical thinking about impermanence. And then, of course, we try to see impermanence. But we're we're trying in exactly the way that doesn't actually lead to seeing things deeply. It leads to headaches and frustration and uh, doubt. Like, maybe it isn't impermanent because, you know, I'm trying really hard and this seems pretty steady, whatever this is. You know, me seems pretty steady. I'm the same guy I was earlier this afternoon. This seems to be pretty much the same world as it was and, So we need a, there is a certain kind of effort or a certain kind of integrity that is needed. You could just call it interest, uh, an authentic interest, which also applies a humility, like that we don't really know what this is, so then we're going to show up with real interest, real humility. And, uh, like an unformed mind. 
So when we look at the breath, or when we look at sensations in the body, or when we look at mental activity, we've slowly learned how to tease out all the presumptions about what's being seen or known, so that something new can be seen. Because when we're seen with a very fixed notion of what's there, that fixed notion strongly colors what we see, what we know. This is a poem I meant to read last week, Antonio Machado, from Proverbs and Tiny Songs. Why should we call these accidental furrows roads? Everyone who moves on walks like Jesus on the sea. You walking, your footprints are the road and nothing else. There is no road, walker. You made the road by walking. By walking, you make the road. And when you look backward, you see the path that you never will step on again. Walker, there is no road, only wind trails in the sea. I love Jesus who said to us, Heaven and earth will pass away. When heaven and earth have passed away, my word will still remain. What was your word, Jesus? Love, forgiveness, affection, all your words were one word. All your words were one word. Wake up. All things die and all things live forever. But our task is to die, to die making roads, roads over the sea. To die, to fall like a drop of seawater into the immense sea. Or to be what I have never been, one man without shadow, without dream, a man all alone, walking, with no road, with no mirror. So last week, for those who weren't here, or who didn't listen to the recording on the website, um, I looked at this question that Ajahn Tanisaro brings up in his article on impermanence, which is one of the articles that you have the link for on the website. And he asks this question, the article is all about change. What, when I do it, will lead to my long-term well-being and happiness? And he really makes the point that to study to take up this, the Buddhist teachings on impermanence, we need to understand the context. So the context is we're a human being that's interested in a lasting happiness. So what, when I do it, will lead to that kind of lasting happiness? And then impermanence becomes relevant because there are things we can create, but they're not lasting. You know, there are ways to participate in the world that have effects. But what, when I do it, will lead to a lasting happiness? The Buddha has a very provocative image. He says, Practitioners, this samsara is without discoverable beginning. A first point is not discerned of beings roaming and wandering on, hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving, what do you think, practitioners, what is more, the stream of tears that you have shed as you roamed and wandered on through this long course, weeping and wailing, 
because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this or the water in the four great oceans. And the practitioners that are with him said, well, the tears we've shed, that's greater than the four great oceans. And the Buddha says, good, good practitioners. It is good that you understand these teachings as taught by me in such a way. The stream of tears you have shed as you roamed and wandered through this long course, weeping and wailing because of being united with the disagreeable and separated from the agreeable, this alone is more than the water and the four great oceans. And a little later he says, For what reason? Because, practitioners, this samsara, these cycles of suffering, is without discoverable beginning. It is enough to experience, and he uses the word, at least Ajahn, actually I'm not sure who, tra- who uh, did this translation. It's enough to experience revulsion, sort of an interesting word, toward all formations, enough to become dispassionate toward them, enough to become liberated from them. So what the Buddha, I think, is pointing to here is we have a skewed relationship with our lives, with our experiences. We grasp, not because, you know, we like the pain of grasping. We grasp because we're misreading the situation. We're not seeing the impermanent nature of things. So it just makes sense to grasp the pleasant experiences. It makes sense to push away the unpleasant experiences. Because there's some presumption based on not seeing things clearly that we can finally get this world together in a way where we're safe, where things are permanently good for us. And as this image the Buddha uses suggests, uh, this is very this has led to a lot of dis-ease, a lot of suffering. The basic mechanism of awakening is to see things as they are and seeing things truthfully then the heart no longer feels inspired to cling, to grasp. We don't actually have to stop grasping. It wouldn't really work that way. It can't work that way. But in understanding more and more clearly the way things are, then non-grasping is the natural result of that. Impermanent, alas, our formation, subject to arising and vanishing, having arisen, they cease, their appeasement is blissful. This is interesting because, you know, the sense of self that feels so natural and appropriate, the sense of our permanent me here, impermanence is only a problem for that. So when the mind isn't constructing that sense of a permanent me, In fact, when that's abandoned, when that whole sense construction of separation is abandoned, then it isn't even appropriate to talk about past and future or change and permanence. These concepts relate to this construction of self. In fact, all the Dharma, using the word Dharma now as the teachings of the Buddha, these teachings are for deluded beings. You know, for 
beings who are in the habit of constructing a sense of separation. That's what they were, they were articulated, these teachings were articulated for suffering beings, beings that are suffering because of their misperceiving or their ignorance, not seeing things as they are. There's an image, another provocative image. You know, when you throw fat into fire, it sort of shrinks, shrivels, as the grease, you know, burns off. And the Buddha used this image um, about how the mind retreats from grasping when it sees things as they are. It's like a natural response to let go. You know, we talk about letting go, but it's more like we don't really want to let go but we know we're supposed to let go. And it doesn't really work. You know, we really want to hold. That's, that's what we want to do. And there's a lot of images in the Buddhist tradition, like the monkey that reaches its hand into a small hole to get something, like inside of a coconut to get something, but the coconut is attached. It doesn't want to let go of the fruit or the coconut, but it can't pull its hand out because it's made a fist to hold on to what it wants. Ajahn Chah said, Do everything with a mind that lets go. Don't accept praise or gain or anything else. If you let go a little, you will have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you will have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you will have complete peace. So, you know, as we're taking up this theme, this practice of interest in the changing nature, the inconstant nature. We want to keep coming back to this basic, you know, existential situation we have, which we are a being looking for lasting happiness. And so, if we're looking for lasting happiness, then it's all of a sudden really relevant whether things are changing or not, inconstant or not. So that's why Ajahn Tanisaro likes to use the translation of a Nietzsche using constancy or inconstant instead of impermanent. Because impermanent, you know, it's okay that things are impermanent. That's not necessarily a problem. But when we're looking for lasting happiness and everything we find that might be lasting happiness turns out to be inconstant, well, then we're frustrated. That's dukkha. And it doesn't make sense to be claiming things that are changing in constant, not able to supply happiness, so they're dukkha, they're stressful, as self. And this is the formulation of the three characteristics. And again, remember that the three characteristics is a teaching that the Buddha devised for suffering beings, beings that are suffering because of misperceiving the way things are. He didn't mean this to be some cosmological truth, because from, you know, at least philosophically, from an absolute point of view, change doesn't, you know, change or not change doesn't make sense. Change is relevant from a philosophical or existential point of view of permanency. All of a sudden change is relevant. But when there's an understanding of 
being nature, you know, the, the changing, natural changing of nature, then change isn't relevant. Does that make sense? It's only relevant from a sense of a, a static point of me. Then change stands out. So the Buddha devised this teaching on the three characteristics, anicca, dukkha, anatta. And not always, but they can be useful taught in a sequence. So, you know, taking up the training to notice the ephemeral unfolding nature of our experiences. And that because just our very nature as a living being is that we want lasting happiness, and now we're reflecting on the changing nature, we realize that wherever we're in this moment trying to, naturally trying to act out this desire for lasting happiness, but because we're training, we've been taking up the instruction to notice the inconstant, ungovernable nature of experience, where what experience, what the process of being is revealing is dukkha. It's frustrating. Because I want lasting happiness. I, that sense of permanent static me, wants lasting happiness. But because I've taken up the Buddha's instruction to see the changing nature, I'm recognizing that no matter what I construct, even in a perfect scenario, if I get everything I want, it's inconstant. It's all frustrating. And you can just start playing with this as you fantasize about your lakeside home up north or getting your act together. And John and I had a brief conversation about the seven-minute workout that was in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago. And uh, I mean, Bob, sorry. And, uh, and, you know, so we could have this image of like not just doing it twice a week or three times a week, maybe seven minutes every day or maybe twice a day. And there's just that idea of that body sort of getting its firmness back and its vitality back. I did mine tonight. Did you? You look like you did. You look good. <laughs> yeah, I saw that too. I'm going to be the seven-minute snob, though. I think it takes seven minutes. <laughs> but in any case, so we can, uh, you know, take that up as a, a way to, like, change our life. And some, but see, we're not really interested in changing our life unless it's going to have some lasting impact. And that's what we can start to play with as we notice all the different ways. Like, I've been doing that. With all kinds of things, and including retreat land and um, home renovations and, you know, like getting on top of my to-do list and just really seeing the, uh, the fallacy, like this idea that it would be lasting. And once I see that, it's like I'm so much less neurotic about wanting this, wanting to get my to-do list together or whatever. It's just not as relevant when I understand immediately the ephemeral nature, the changing nature, that it is, this is ungovernable. It's inconstant. So just, that's what reveals the dukkha, is that tension between what we're in the habit of doing and what the truth of inconstancy is revealing. And that's just frustrating.
just recognizing it as uh, the way it is is frustrating. And the more that we have that experience of frustration, it just begs the existential question in the moment, not philosophically, but sort of as a mind is processing its experiencing, its experiences, I want to say the word experiencing, but it doesn't always work. So it's processing its experiences, and but it, that tension of dukkha is, in a sense, begging the question, well, does it even make sense to claim this? It just starts, the setup of how frustrating it is starts to seem really impersonal. Because it doesn't make sense that I would be constantly seeking lasting happiness in a way that won't deliver. That whole process doesn't make sense. It just has to be some impersonal process that got set in motion. Because when the mind is seeing clearly, it's not insane. It doesn't do counterproductive things when it's seeing clearly. So if something counterproductive is happening over and over again, it's not personal, because we don't do that. The sense of self wouldn't just put its hand on a hot burner if it knows that it's hot. It just doesn't do something that's stressful. You see, it's incongruous with the sense of self that we would do something. I'm not saying that we don't do things that are self-destructive. We do that all the time. I do that all the time, at least. But I don't do it in full awareness. I do it because in those moments my mind is misunderstanding what's going on, and then I end up getting burnt or end up frustrated. So, as we're with our experience, we want to notice that sequence of taking up the Buddhist instruction where we're training the mind to notice the changing nature and then notice the appropriate frustration or dukkha that becomes more obvious and then just staying steady with that, noticing how impersonal it is, that that would just keep happening like that. You see that like if you watch an animal, uh, another, a non-human animal, more simple animal, when they encounter something that they don't know, they haven't, it's like not in their normal experience to encounter it. Like, you know, the classic example is uh, walking after a good rain on a road and you see all the earthworms crawling on the road, you know, only to get run over by the car tires and the or just not to be able to make it across the road as the morning sun comes up and shines down on the asphalt, they dry up. And uh, it's just like their genetic programming hasn't had enough experience with roads to sort of deal with this. And uh, I forget the point I was going to make here. <laughs> maybe maybe somebody, do you know it, Scott? <laughs> well, actually, back to earthworms, they're out on the road because... There's water in the soil and they can't breathe. No, no, I know. And so it's not a question of not knowing about roads. It's because if they stay in the soil, they don't get so they're not off the road in order to survive. So drawing connections to they don't understand roads seems precious. Well, I mean, there are many examples of that, like uh, animals with headlights. And but I think the point is still the, the idea is that our mind is. It's like uh, when we come up against a new experience, we don't necessarily know how to, to handle it. 
But like I said, I forgot why I was bringing this up to begin with, so we'll just move on. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Jan. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, so in that case, when we're, we bump up against experience and we end up making a mistake, the key is to see that it isn't personal. And that's exactly, even though it may seem like it should be personal, that I keep imagining the house on the perfect northern lake, you know, the cabin that's just exactly the right way, not too sunny, not too shaded, all those things. The, the lake water is natural, but there's no duckweed and other things that, you know, you don't like. And we think, you know, that feels so personal, but we can actually see that that attraction, the whole process and the frustration that comes up around it, because we'll never get it, we can see that it's impersonal. In the same way that it's impersonal when a, a deer freezes on the middle of the road, doesn't know what to do, or any other ways that we uh, encounter experience where we don't know how to be skillful. And the skill and the, un- the lack of skill is impersonal. I didn't hear what you said. I was just a little confused with the lake cabin. Is it impersonal because it's like a, a desire that's come from seeing advertisements or so you can't really blame yourself for wanting that so much? Or yeah, it's, it's not so much the image of the cabin, but it's the tendency to want to grasp it. You know, that that, that grasping, you know, got set in motion to who knows the different causes and conditions that set that tendency that when the mind constructs something that has the appearance of being pleasant, or it actually is pleasant, those images have a certain pleasantness to them, the mind grasps. So the the tendency is to grasp experience. And that's what seen when the mind is seeing the impermanent nature and seeing how frustrating that is, it begins to also understand how impersonal that whole process is. And in understanding how impersonal it is, it's the understanding the impersonal nature that then undermines the programming to grasp. So the whole process is impersonal. The whole awakening process itself is impersonal, which would have to, it would have to be that way in the Buddha's, in the way the Buddha came to understand things, the way he described things. And there's this famous sutta discourse where the Buddha goes through that. I won't be able to go through it in great detail because we're going to break into small groups in a few minutes. But I did post two suttas on the uh, the website, and you can go there and uh, take a look. One is the Anatalakana Sutta, the discourse on the not-self characteristic, where the Buddha basically goes through the body and mind. He says, okay, so practitioners, this form is not self. If it were self, this form would not lend itself to dis-ease, to discomfort. It would be possible to say with regard to this form, let the form be thus, let the form not be thus. But precisely because form is not self, form lends itself to dis-ease. It is not possible to say with regard to form, let the form be thus, let the form be not thus. So the Buddha goes through this with the five aggregates. 
And then he says the same thing about inconstant or impermanence. What do you think, practitioner? Is the body constant or inconstant? And of course, they go through the other five aggregates in the same way. Feeling, mental formations, perceptions, and consciousness. Thus, practitioners, any form or any part of the mind-body experience, thus, practitioners, any part of the five aggregates whatsoever, that is, past, future, present, internal or external, blatant or subtle, common or sublime, far or near, every form is to be seen as it actually is, with right discernment. This is not mine, this is not myself, this is not what I am. And at the end of that talk, he says, Seeing thus the well-instructed disciple of the noble ones grows disenchanted with the body, with form, disenchanted with feeling, with perception, with mental fabrications, disenchanted with consciousness, disenchanted one becomes dispassionate. Through dispassion one is fully released. With full release there is the knowledge fully released. One discerns that birth is ended, the holy life fulfilled, the task done. There is nothing further for this world. So this is our great predicament. And it's why last week I asked people just in the most simple way to start noticing the beginning and endings, the beginning of a day, the ending of the day, the beginning of a meeting, the ending of a meeting, the beginning of a sip of water, the ending of a sip of water, the beginning of a thought, the ending of a thought. It's so interesting to see desire for something and then have enough interest so that you actually see that that desire at some point ends. It was there in the mind for a while, and then it's not there anymore. Same with aversion. You know, we get different things trigger old emotional patterns of defensiveness or whatever it might be for each of us. And then that sort of has a life, depending on supporting conditions, and then eventually it ceases. How many mind states, how many emotional states... How many experiences have come and gone? And then when they go, they really go. They're just gone. And to just begin to observe that has a real impact in the mind. I recommend that uh, you take a close look at that article by Ajahn Tanisaro, um, All About Change. And we looked at the beginning part last week. I, I want to read a little bit more this week where he's talking about the three characteristics and then we'll break up into groups of three. So on page three of that, he says, If you're seeking a dependable basis for long-term happiness and ease, anything in constant is obviously a stressful place to pin your hopes. Like trying to relax in an unstable chair whose legs are liable to break at any time. If you understand that your sense of self is something willed and fabricated, that you choose to create it, there is no compelling reason to keep creating a me or a mind around any experience that is inconstant and stressful. You want something better. You don't want to make that experience the goal of your practice. So what do you do with experiences that are inconstant and stressful? You can treat them as worthless and throw them away, but that would be wasteful. And he goes on to talk about using experience to teach us. And, and you know, one of the reasons it's confusing is some experiences do seem to provide some 
resonant happiness, clearly. I mean, if it was so obvious that experience doesn't provide lasting happiness, we would have gotten this a long time ago. But some experiences, like, you know, classic kinds of experiences, living in a harmonious community or having a harmonious family life for a while, you know, that creates a sense of sort of relatively permanent happiness. We bring our partner to mind or our family to mind or our pet to mind, right? And there's a sense of that relationship and the harmony of that relationship providing, you know, some kind of seemingly solid, real happiness. And so Ajahn Tanisaro says this, you know, there, and the Buddha describes this, like there are certain aspects of experience that are worth cultivating, like generosity, like the cultivation of non-harming, living harmoniously, and uh, a concentrated mind. Because these things, as happiness goes, provide some relative stability. When we're living in a generous way, the good feeling that comes out of being generous is relatively resistant to change. It still changes, but it has some coherence and stability in the great swirl of our lives. Same with having cultivated some harmony in our relationships because we're being kind and not harming others. That has some relative stability. It's like... uh, uh, protects us from everything else that tends to be much more ephemeral. And concentration. Those of you who have been able to train your mind or just naturally are good at concentration, you know it's like uh, a great protection. You have, a, let's say, a really the sort of good sit in the sense that the mind became relatively still and quiet, peaceful, and then you get up and go back into your busy day. But the aftertaste of the stillness, it gives us an immunity to things that would normally cause us to swirl around and be, become reactive and, and struggle and suffer. So these things, you know, there are experiences that we can cultivate, even though they're impermanent, they're worthy of cultivation because the relative stability we get from them allows us to become a more avid student of impermanence, to look more deeply at impermanence. And when you look at some of the great saints in the Buddhist tradition, they talk about this point in their practice when they've cultivated a lot of the relative st- the happiness that's relatively stable. Generosity, I mean, dana, sila, bhavana, or the, that's sort of the classic list of Things. If you're going to cultivate good merit in this conditioned life, that's what you, if you want to be happy in a relative way, in an impermanent way, then cultivate generosity and uh, ethical conduct and concentration, a steady mind, a peaceful mind. But when you read, like, I remember reading an article that was based on a talk Ajahn Mahabua gave, this very well known Thai meditation master and Buddhist monk, and he talks about how, you know, he was just in this place where the quality of the mind, the heart, was just so beautifully exalted and peaceful and still and radiant and so seemingly safe and constant. 
and that the breakthrough, you know, the, the f- sort of the implication, the final insight for him was seeing, uh, seeing the subtle attachment, the identity around that. And of course, the identity, whenever the mind is establishing an identity, it's assuming that that's permanent or that's a place worthy of attachment. And when he saw that, then his heart released and was free. So this is, this is to, I'm saying this because just because we're cultivating impermanence, you could easily say, well, why bother meditating? Why bother with the cultivation part of practice if it's all impermanent? There are things that are relevant. I mean, we have so much momentum towards cultivation we're not going to just cease all cultivation. That would be the easy way, but it's just not going to happen for us, probably. So what we start to do is we tease out the cultivation that is clearly leading to unhappiness and emphasize the cultivation that seems to lead to more stable happiness and well, a sense of well-being, all the while maintaining, developing, strengthening the mind's interest in impermanence. And we'll talk about that in the weeks ahead, like how to do that. So in the small groups tonight, you might want to share about what you've learned thus far in your life about impermanence. I mentioned earlier, you know, just noticing the beginning and endings of experience. That's one thing you can share in your small groups. Another really useful place to begin to reflect on impermanence is just in terms of body sensations. And just, uh, I mean, it just gives us a whole other dimension in working with un- unpleasant body sensations to have some sense of the changing nature. And it's a way to um, experience the body in a very blissful way. Like when people talk about blissful states, energetic states of the body, it's more that the mind is recognizing the changing nature. Sometimes people use the word like, "Why, well, yeah, just the body is just energy. But actually what the people, person is experiencing is just the changing nature of the body, which, you know, we call that, it's fine to call it energy or vibration. We call it whatever you want, but the idea is it's, it's, it's really nice. It's pleasant. Just like it's relatively unpleasant to feel the body solid and heavy, and dense, and when it's really light, like uh, sometimes if you do that typical sauna, cold water, sauna, cold water, you do that a few times, and uh, for some people, you know, it's like the body becomes more vibratory, less dense, and there are a number of sort of healing modalities you can use to have this, or you can just concentrate your mind on the body. If you do that, you'll have that same experience. It will feel even like you're levitating. Because what the mind is noticing, not it's the body in its normal way, it's noticing the changing nature. And it doesn't have the same structure or form that we normally impose on the body when our concepts of the body are strongly involved in our experience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.